guys. Welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Riyag's Over, Over Coffee. Coffee. Today we have with us Dr. Bill Grobman. Dr. Grobman is the Vice Chair of Clinical Operations in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and a professor of obstetrics and gynecology and maternal fetal medicine at Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. Welcome, Dr. Grobman. Thanks. It's great to be here. Dr. Grobman, what we like to start out with, I guess, is we're here in Las Vegas. We're at SMFM's annual meeting. What has you most excited for this year's meeting? Maybe I'll give you the general response first, and then you can ask me more specifics. But I think what always has me most excited um, is the science that's going to be presented. I mean, it's a it's a fundamentally great meeting. I think the courses are fantastic. There's really so much to learn. There's new workshops and conferences. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the research that's presented, um, just as one example, uh, Dr. Lori Harper is going to be presenting a randomized controlled trial on gestational diabetes mellitus. And, I, you know, if you think about our field, something as, well, theoretically, fundamentally simple as, as gestational diabetes, something that's taught in every basic uh, clerkship and through residency and just these sort of fundamental questions about things that are basic in our field that we don't know. So I think the presentations like that just really uh, make this a conference that every year we just so look forward to coming to. Um, Dr. Roman, can you give us a, a little bit of your background, what brought you to OBGYN and ultimately MFM and kind of what your interests currently are. I think our listeners are very interested in how people like yourself have kind of gotten to where you are. Yeah, you know, I mean, I guess everyone has their own digressive story. But um, if you had asked me when I was a medical student, uh, certainly at the beginning, I guess at some point during a medical student, I knew I was doing OBGYN. But at the very beginning, certainly that never uh, would have crossed my mind. Uh, and I think it speaks to the importance of not being always too determined or uh, intentional in terms of what you think you're going to do or your next steps, because a lot of times when you're not, you find and discover things that kind of take you in new and exciting directions. So I was, the way my medical school worked, you kind of gave certain points to what kind of uh, clerkship you wanted, like when you wanted it, where you wanted it, and sort of you loaded up all your points on the things you thought you were going to go into, so you get the, you know, at the time of the year you wanted and the the whatever the conceived place that you wanted and so I put like no points on OBGYN and it was my very last clerkship um, and I happened to be put in a place though that was this um, really lovely hospital that um, really focused on uh, obstetrics and uh, it was just a really um, wonderful rotation I and I just remember being bowled away by uh, at that point uh, obstetric uh, care and and sharing uh, those experiences with with patients uh, and so it really was just a sort of transformative for me in terms of thinking about what I wanted to do. I think at least for me when I was a student, I always thought like what could I be called for and this is probably relevant in the middle of the night and think like, wow, that is an exciting thing to get up for and so if I sort of weighed you know, back pain or uh, birth, it seemed like birth, you know, it wasn't even really a close call. Um, and it was just something I had had no experience with before. So anyway, that's a, a long story for a short answer, which is that basically I just did my clerkship and it was really just a, an amazing experience. Um, 
And so that was OBGYN. And then I think it just, um, if I hadn't done OBGYN, I probably would have done something more like uh, complex medical. And so then I think it becomes reasonably clear why doing a residency, I became interested in maternal fetal medicine. I had already told you that I was really interested in obstetrics. And, uh, and then that sort of combination of obstetrics and, and, and complicated uh, care and, uh, and the multidimensionality of it, both the mother and the child and the philosophic social implications, I thought were really interesting. So, um, and then you look up and it's 25 years later. You know, Dr. Grobman, and definitely 25 years later, there's been a lot of accomplishments and you're certainly prolific. I mean, one of the things that's really, I've heard through the woodwork most talked about here is the ARRIVE trial that you're most certainly associated with. But what do you look back and see as, you know, maybe your most important accomplishment today, your most valuable contribution to the field? Oh, you know, I'm, um, that's a great question and one I probably am loath to answer. Uh, <laughs> only, be, only because I don't think things typically boil down, you know, or can be boiled down to things that are uh, most important or biggest accomplishments. I, I, I tend to see um, the things that you do, whether it's the research that you do or the patient care that you do or the education that you do as these sort of intermingled, entangled experiences that um, really become hard to disaggregate. So I know it, it seems like a great answer to be like, oh, and there was this one paper, you know, this one, but they, but I don't really ever, when I think of it, I don't actually think of it that way. I don't think like, oh, there was this one thing that was whatever uh, adjective that you want to apply to it. I, I kind of tend to think of it as just um, the, multidimen the multidimensionality of the experience and how, you know, whether it's education and the, well, used to be trainees that are no, now no longer trainees and are doing great things in the world. You know, that's an, that's an incredible experience. It's not one thing, um, but I think that's a really meaningful thing. So I think, you know, we're talking to you, Dr. Grumman, and Nick had, had mentioned the ARRIVE trial, and I feel like we definitely have to ask you about the ARRIVE trial because it's definitely um, been impacting our hospital and our practice too. What was the um, kind of the beginnings of the ARRIVE trial? How did you come up with the idea to do this? And what do you think that people should take away from the ARRIVE trial? Does, should we be inducing all of our nulliparous women at 39 weeks? Is that what you want us to take away? Or are you, are you kind of, is this more like, a, well, you know, if you need to, if someone wants to be induced at 39 weeks, we wouldn't be wrong to do it. There's no harm potentially that could come from that. Sure. No, I, well, I definitely don't think, well, let me go back to the initial question, which yeah. is how did it come up? And it really came up, I, I'd love to say I was just, you know, s uh, sitting there uh, one day and it just sort of flew into my mind, but th that's really not true. And it also, I, I think, wouldn't convey the importance of of interaction uh, with your peers. So uh, it actually goes back to uh, Aaron Coy, who um, I was talking with him about something one day, and we were having this discussion about induction and cesarean. And I mean, for my entire life, I had been taught about the relationship between induction and uh, cesarean. And uh, speaking with Dr. Coy that day, he was talking about it in a different way, and it actually took me a, a bit of time to see what he was saying. And then suddenly when I saw that, I realized what he had already known, which is sort of how fundamentally wrong 
exactly the question had been asked. And so I think that's an important message ultimately, which is how the professional collaborations, communications, discussions you have are you know, so important and really how important it is to try to have an open mind to things that you may think are fundamentally against uh, what you've known, believe, been taught. Anyway, because of that, actually, um, and because I thought the prior studies had a variety of different uh, uh, biases, the observational studies that had suggested that there was either no increased risk of cesarean delivery or an actual reduction, I thought, well, well, now, if we do it at our place and we do it right, you know, and just overcoming some of the limitations that have been in prior studies that we, you know, show what we always knew, which is that induction was associated with cesarean. And indeed, um, working with uh, Sarah Osmondson, um, who's now an MFM at Vanderbilt, um, we did an observational study and, and it app didn't show that, which was sort of like, uh, like when you do it yourself and it still looks uh, completely uh, against what you've known, it becomes a, a different thing. And so I think on the basis of that and the accumulating data, um, and the fact that at that point in time, about one in four women were being induced in this country. And I think it's really uh, egregious that we couldn't actually say we knew what the consequences of that intervention were. I think it, it, you know, it spoke to the need for a randomized trial um, so that we stopped wondering if the observational studies were due to bias or you know, other things. So anyway, yeah, so what does it all mean? I mean, it's certainly, I would not look at those, the results of that trial in any way, shape, or form to suggest that suddenly all women um, should be being induced to 39 weeks. I think that would be a, you know, a tragedy if that was the, the take-home, I think. But, but what it should speak to is that the more general concept, which is that if, if, if as care providers we are uh, going to be working and counseling with our patients to find the best outcomes for them, both you know, core biologic and patient-reported, there's no way to do that if we don't have information, or there's a way to do it, and it seems like a bad way. Uh, and so to be able to do that, I, th- I think you need information. And this is just one trial of many, but that can provide the ability to counsel, to counsel the women for whom you're caring and um, try to get the best outcomes, you know, work to try to get the best outcomes for them, you know, how, how they judge that to be. So, yeah, I don't think at all it's that suddenly this should be done for everyone because they're there are clearly uh, some individuals who are not going to find the process of induction, the intervention, uh, to uh, warrant, uh, even if an, uh, an advantage were to be acknowledged, uh, to warrant that. Uh, but on the other hand, I think it's important that we're able to get information to our patients in an accurate way and let them make decisions that are most expansive of of, of choice and their own personal values. And so, um, so I think that's really the take-home message, not that it should become a, a cudgel with which, you know, applied to everyone, but that it becomes something, you know, in information and expansion of choice. That's a fantastic summary. Thank you for that. Um, Dr. Grobman, speaking to, again, our listeners who are mostly residents, medical students, fellows, is there any advice or wisdom that you would say is helpful for your career or that you would say to us as we look towards a career in MFM? Well, I think, I mean, probably there are, I don't know, there's probably lots of things, but there's maybe two things I'll say, um, because at some point, 
yeah, two things I'll say. One thing I'll say is what I said before, which is sometimes I see uh, an over-reliance on, you know, there's a certain path or there's a certain way or, you know, this is the thing that ensures success or, and I think that's hogwash. Um, and I actually think oftentimes kind of a little bit less intentionality is a, is a beneficial thing and that there's lots of paths to get to where you want, including ones that have not been taken before. Um, and that you shouldn't let that stand in your way of, of thinking about different or novel things or, or thinking about doing something different that you never thought before. And, and, uh, I mean, maybe that's just something everyone knows, but I think, I think lots of times I see people who really feel like, well, this is the way to get the residency I want, or this is the fellowship, or this is how to progress in academics, or this is how, and, and the truth is they're really, they're just things people have done before, but they're not necessarily, they're just things among many that you can do. And, and again, going back to an earlier theme, I think that, um, a, a lot of times if there's an extreme of that, which is that you get so intent on the plot passed out that you miss opportunities that, that arise unexpectedly. And I think the other thing is, um, and I've definitely thought more about this um, as I've, as I've uh, gone along, which is how important it is not to let, um, you know, there's going to be moments of failure in your career. Um, that is, although momentarily bad, not existentially bad. And uh, just how important it is to, you know, it, it's, it's hard, uh, particularly for people who are typically so successful and all the other aspects. And I mean, it's one, uh, one aspect of the thing I've, I've gotten them to the place where they are. And, um, you know, but the truth is that none of the people that you're working with have had uh, success uh, that has just been constant and, and progressive and, and without setback. Um, I was, there was an article the other day, and it was someone saying, like, they think everyone should have a CV of failure. Um, which, you know, a collection of all the things that they applied for and they haven't gotten, um, if for no other reason that they can show it to other people. And uh, because we always uh, talk about the successes we had, or that's what's always portrayed, um, you know, but we never uh, typically get invited to a place to talk about the grant we put in that didn't get accepted or the paper that went through 17 revisions um, or and maybe never even saw the light of day. And so... So I think that that's just a really important thing, and it can be it can be something that if if people don't keep it in mind, um, I, I think at the end of the day can become disabling and certainly disincentivizing to continue. And I think that's a, sh- a shame, uh, given everything individuals have to contribute. So just uh, you know, resilience is an incredibly important thing. It's part of the the farther you go, the more failure you have. And uh, it's just important to keep that in mind. Dr. Goodman, some fun questions now, I guess. Sure. <laughs> what, um, what do you do outside of work or what do you do even at work that keeps you grounded? Well, um, I think, you know, it is, it is so important, obviously, uh, as, as the question that you just posed, that uh, work is, is balanced with uh, other interests. Um, you know, I live in a in a city where there is a, a a large uh, variety of things to do, whether it be opera, sports. Um, I have a, a family who I spend time with and um, 
have been through the stage of my life where uh, children are growing. And so it's always spending uh, a good amount of time as well around uh, their lives, which is, which is a, a great thing as well. Um, and at, at work, I think what, what you try to do to keep grounded is just, um, actually, I think the variation of work is uh, really important, you know, at least for me, that there are some days that are spent more administratively, some days that are spent more clinically, some days that are spent more research, some days that are spent more in education or, or with uh, uh, trainees. And I think, for me at least, at work that's been a really important component because it it allows me not to forget about the sort of special parts about each and every one of those components and i think ultimately that is what you know grounding is remembering not becoming inured to this the things that you thought at one time or were special you mentioned opera dr savi was with us earlier and mentioned his favorite opera was don giovanni you have a favorite Dr. Sade's favorite opera is Don Giovanni? Yes. yes. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. Wow, I did not know that. Things you learn uh, at Creog's Over Coffee. Uh, <laughs> you have to have a whole, uh, a, a whole podcast about different people's favorite operas. Um, do I have a favorite opera? I don't know that I would say I have an absolute uh, a favorite. Um, no, you know, I guess I, I, you know, you're hearing from me, I guess, when you ask me, like, what's the thing or the favorite thing? That generally, no, my favorite thing isn't in opera. It's 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 actually the unexpectedness of when you go, and um, you know, even just for example, uh, just before we came here, La Boheme was on, and um, you know, I'd seen it multiple times before because it's an opera that's put on quite a bit. Um, but this was a totally different production with totally different people with. Um, remotely different interpretations and it was just it was really super good and super interesting and so yeah i, I don't know i'll have to talk to george about that um <laughs> but uh I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna beg off the question and say i don't think i really had there's not one i would say is is favorite more than the others it's more the experience of going fair enough dr roman i mean we're here interviewing you if you had the opportunity to be in our shoes and interview somebody doesn't necessarily have to be um, an MFM or even someone who's in the obstetrics world, but who would you interview? Uh, Jackie Robinson. Good choice. All right. Well, Dr. Grumman, thanks again for joining us on Creogs Over Coffee. Um, it was a pleasure to have you. Great. Well, it was great to be here. Thanks so much. Hey, I hope you feel better. Thank you. <laughs> All right, guys. So once again, I'm Nick. I'm Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoyed this podcast or any of our other podcasts, go ahead and find us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or any of your other podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online at www.creogsovercoffee.com, on Twitter at creogsovercoff1, or on Facebook at creogsovercoffee. You can also give us some support in exchange for some cool swag and our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash creogsovercoffee. If you have ideas for future episodes or you want to hear from other people like Dr. Grobman in future interviews, please email us at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.